it's PNN, and I'm Brooke Himes, your host. Tonight, we got some good stuff. It is uh, January the 17th, 2021. Inauguration is in three days. We've already had an insurrection, so hopefully we can have an inauguration that is pulled off without any hitches. There are right now 25,000 National Guard troops in D.C. I guess that's supposed to make things better. I don't know if that's the case, actually. But there they are. And uh, and Joe Biden is doing five whole days of of inauguration. This is this is uh, uh, that's kind of annoying. I I would really kind of rather he got just just started got to work. But anyway, that that's you know if, if I ran the world, that's how things would go. Tonight on the show, we've got Janine Moloff with the Justice Report talking about how Trump sabotaged. Uh, our intelligence professionals by directing agencies to ignore insurrection threats coming from white supremacists and neo-Nazis. Corey Bush uh, was right when she called Trump out as white supremacist in chief. So uh, there's a a, a real interesting chunk there, and I can't wait for that. That'll be at the bottom of the next hour. We have Cardit Krishnayer calling in at 7.30, to do a real quick, I want to touch base on our history, uh, uh, professional history um, expert, because I want someone to help me understand how Joe Biden's agenda is going to be uh, managed through the legislative branch. We have very narrow margins in the House and Senate, and so that uh, uh, there is history in 1993 and there's history in 2009 of how that was managed under Bill Clinton and under Obama. And I think that both are very pertinent to what we're going to see with Joe Biden. So look for that bottom of this hour. And then something a little special at eight o'clock. I want to address uh, uh, some uh, social media uh, controversy that is that has been going on, which actually happens to involve uh, some Florida activists. So look for that at the top of the hour. Now, uh, first, I have a segment for you here that I'm going to queue up. And we're going to get right into it. Well, I'm, I I recorded a segment earlier today about uh, Joe Biden's agenda and the re, the reaction to it and what we can expect in uh, upcoming. So, uh, you know, why not? Let's uh, let's just um, we can call this the beat and do that for this week's beat. Okay, so this week, Joe Biden unveiled his $1.9 trillion uh, relief package and set out 
a couple of memos that were to talk about his uh, aggressive legislative uh, agenda and also the uh, to put everyone on on notice that he's actually going to use executive orders to undo a bunch of stuff that Trump has done and push his own agenda in a way that circumvents the legislative branch. So the stuff that he can't get through the House and the Senate, you know, immediate stuff that, that needs to be fixed, he has signaled that he wants to use executive orders to get that done. Now, this goes against a lot of what we've heard about the way that Joe Biden wants to uh, do lawmaking as a new president. He did not want to use executive orders, but he's claiming now that that's what he's going to do. And we know a little bit of what that's going to look like. Okay, so here we have uh, New York Times, Biden seeks quick start with executive actions and aggressive legislation. Now, the big uh, uh, talk on social media about this particular proposal, which is $1.9 trillion in, in legislative action, is that the stimulus for people, the checks, that were supposed to be $2,000 are suddenly now $1,400 without a word of uh, uh, acknowledgement that they just spent the last week or two weeks campaigning for the Senate seats in Georgia saying explicitly that $2,000 checks are what is hanging in the balance with regard to whether or not we elect uh, one or other or the both Ossoff and Warnock in Georgia. And if you've been on social media in the last few days, you are probably familiar with the kerfuffle that has happened uh, around this, where, you know, people who have memories, uh, you know, of object permanence and, you know, can uh, relate what happens now to what was being said two weeks ago. We all remember when it was said, hey, these $2,000 checks are coming if we elect these people. Well, at the same time, you have what I can only describe as DNC intern accounts, you know, uh, legislative staffers and <clears throat> party hacks alike coming around and saying, oh, no, they always meant that it would, uh, it, it would equal $2,000 that, uh, that, that they never intended to say that they were going to put out $2,000 checks. Well, how about this? And that's not an exaggeration. That is a literal, that's literally true. If you send John and the Reverend to Washington, those $2,000 checks will go out the door, restoring hope and decency and honor for so many people who are struggling right now. 
And I got to tell you, $2,000 checks, at least for our family, uh, that would go a long way to restoring some hope and some decency, especially given the way that things have gone in the last year. And then to turn around just days later and say, oh, no, no, they were always supposed to be $1,400. So like for a family of two, the difference is $1,200. I mean that's that's a lot of money. That is that that is a lot of money for a family of two. Um, so people are rightfully calling him out on this, and I am personally just amazed. And I shouldn't be because I've been around this stuff for low thirty years, but I'm still amazed at the dishonest and disingenuous uh, party hacks that want to get out in front of this. You know like taking a bullet for for the for the administration and try to gaslight everybody that this is never what was meant. I mean, really, what do you who do you think you are? Who do you think you're fooling? I mean, we all saw this and and more. So here's here's some of the other things that were said. So if you don't believe Joe Biden, how about John Ossoff? When we win both of these Senate races, we will pass $2,000 stimulus checks immediately for the American people. I spoke with the president-elect about that personally yesterday. So John Ossoff is right there saying that he personally spoke to the uh, president-elect, to Biden, and that $2,000 checks, if Warnock and John Ossoff were elected, that, that those $2,000 checks would be cut. And then immediately, all of a sudden, this is $1,400, and all of a sudden, we get all this gaslighting. Now, i got to tell you that uh, it's one thing to be to, – to, to have – the the rug pulled out from under you for a lot of money, you know, that is needed materially for families right now. Like that's one thing. It's another thing entirely to be gaslit by people who are on the freaking payroll for the party or for members of Congress or are in other ways beholden to hard power or soft power within the party. It is not okay. Here's Forbes magazine. Biden's final pitch to Georgia, vote blue and $2,000 checks will go out the door immediately. Here's Joe Biden tweeting on January 10. $600 is simply not enough when you have to choose between paying rent or putting food on the table. We need $2,000 stimulus checks. And I'm sure everyone has seen the ads that say, want a $2,000 check? And it has a a check, the United States Treasury check that you get from like uh, uh, tax returns and stuff. And it says, hashtag vote Warnock. These were were digital ads that that had been blanketed across uh, the Internet before the election. The point being, I think we see how this is getting ready to go. That there are going to be uh, uh, issues that are put in front of uh, the deliberative bodies, and uh, a lot of that is meant to never go anywhere. And $2,000 checks, even though they campaigned on this and they marketed it like, you know, it was the uh, Got Milk campaign, Got $2,000 checks, uh, 
they have no problem a day later, four days later, five days later, completely reversing themselves on it and pretending like nothing ever happened. Pretending like that didn't happen. Um, so I want to I want to put out a word of warning. Another piece of policy that is in Joe Biden's uh, agenda that he wants to get through is a $15 minimum wage. And it's the last thing that is mentioned on a number of different stories that I've, I've read on, on what's going on with the Biden agenda, $15 minimum wage. Now I could be wrong, but I feel like, what we just saw with these uh, relief checks, with the survival checks, I think that what we're going to see on the $15 minimum wage is a, a a pushback from, you know, whether it's from Joe Manchin or, or from Republicans or whoever, and they're going to say, oh, now is not the time. Now is not the time for that. So the $15 minimum wage is, I believe, put in there as a, as a negotiation tool. That's going to be pulled out. Now, in this way, take note, this makes Biden a different kind of negotiator than Obama was. Obama, you know, went to a knife fight with a spork, essentially. He had already negotiated himself all the way down before he even started talking to people. Biden, it seems to me, is at least putting things in these in these agendas and in these plans that he intends to pull out that he is using for leverage. Do not expect $15 minimum wage to pass in this first tranche of things. And I'll tell you why, because they need $15 minimum wage ongoing to use as a cudgel to keep people voting for Democrats. This is the same thing that that we've seen on health care since the Bill Clinton administration. Uh, We've we've seen this on reproductive rights. We've seen this on uh, on expanding Medicare now for forever, that uh, these things never get done because they want them as a wedge issue. And the second that a policy is instated, the second that a policy becomes something real, then it's not useful anymore to them, okay? And I think that that explains a lot of consternation that you see in social media. And, and, and let's just face it, social media is the forum. You know, if if we were living in ancient Greece and uh, there was a place where people could gather and talk about the issues of the day, that would be social media for us now, uh, primarily Twitter, you know, because that is where you're focused on words rather than pictures or what's going on with your family, like on Facebook. Instagram is more like, hey, look at me. I've, I look good and I make things that look yummy or, or that look good. Instagram is, is focused on, on visual communication, whereas Twitter is focused on verbal and language kinds of communication. And I think that's where more serious people are going to have these kinds of debates. Um, And TikTok to a certain extent is also becoming kind of interesting. But the point is, is as soon as one of these banner issues is settled, 
the second that it is it taken off the table, it no longer has any power over us. And uh, I don't think they're going to do that. I think they want to hold a, a $15 minimum wage in their back pocket until uh, uh at the cost of living is way over 30 where, where you should be at $30 an hour. You know, they want to hold it to the very, very, very last minute. So when we finally get something, it's another 30 years before we turn around and say, Hey, we need another minimum wage hike. And I'm very concerned about how things are developing with regard to Medicare for all with regard to healthcare. We are in the midst of a pandemic right now and we have no means to get the vaccine out. It has been a massive failure to try and uh, di distribute vaccine through CVS and Walgreens. You know, through through these 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 capitalist ventures that you know they're only uh it, it, they're only interested in their bottom line. They don't have the staff to staff up to be able to handle vaccinating everyone in the country. And, you know, it's not their business. They're, they're, they're really not in the business of public health. Public health is different than dispensing medicine. My father was a pharmacist. I know what it's like to you know, be in a family where you, what you do as a business is uh, it's surrounded by getting medicine to people. And that is a big enough job in itself. But the, to then have to take on the job of vaccinating the whole freaking country as a part of a, a, a public health emergency, CVS and Walgreens are not the right way to go about this. So just to illustrate this, I have a story from uh, NPR. This is Alex Leo. She says she did a dive into why rap, uh, West Virginia is so rapidly outpacing other states in their vaccine distribution. Now, that's pretty mind-blowing. Like, like West Virginia, that is, you know, not exactly known for, um, you, you know, their their public infrastructure in anything, what they what they didn't do was they didn't sign the agreement with CVS and Walgreens that the 49 other states did. So West Virginia has been charting its own path to vaccine distribution. All 49 other states signed on with a federal program partnering with CVS and Walgreens to vaccinate long-term care and assisted living facilities. But those chain stores, uh, which are less common in West Virginia, the, the, the state avoided that, that whole uh, scenario. Under the contract signed with the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, CVS and Walgreens essentially won the right to vaccinate 99% of U.S. nursing homes that registered with the program. They had little incentive to commit a large number of pharmacies and workers to the daunting task of vaccinating people in nursing homes. I mean, think about the business model of CVS and Walgreens. People do not leave the back of the counter. They, they, they take in orders, they count pills, they bottle stuff, and they put orders together for people, and they distribute them as people come to the store. That's the way it's done. 
This vaccine distribution program, especially with regards to nursing homes and assisted living facilities, requires people to leave the pharmacy you know, and, and, and take these vaccines, which, by the way, have to be kept at a certain temperature and it's and it's super critical and it's difficult to do. They have to take them out on the road and go to all of these different facilities and distribute the vaccine there. Now, they don't have the infrastructure to do that. They don't have it. it it's not part of the muscle memory of, of, of these businesses to be able to do that. So that's one of the reasons we failed. You know, one weird trick. Uh, to solve our healthcare problems would be to cut out people like CVS and Walgreens, which were stuck in there just basically as as a nod to business because there is no infrastructure in the United States that that the the Trump administration would use. Now let's see if that changes under Joe Biden. Let's see if what Joe Biden does instead of getting CVS and Walgreens or Walmart or whoever, Costco, instead of having them distribute uh, vaccine, what if they actually use the uh, county public health uh, uh, systems? That's what that's what county public health is there to do, is to look after public health. That would be the right bunch of people to be distributing vaccines. Let's see if Joe Biden, I think that this is something that should be non-controversial. He should be able to get in there and say, no, we are going to use our public health resources in order to do this instead of asking, you know, Target or or. Uh, Kroger or Publix or whoever to distribute vaccines. And now this is super important. Over at the Daily Poster, David Sirota and Andrew Perez have pointed out that the tax break for rich people that ha that is included in Biden's agenda um, is a big part of it. Uh, is much more expensive than the extra $600 that people need um, that, that many people right now are arguing against on social media. So tucked in to this agenda that, that Joe Biden is pushing is trickle-down pandemic relief, essentially. So it's more tax breaks to rich people and, and corporations it's a big tax giveaway for rich people that corporate Democrats in leadership have made a priority instead of making a priority for those $2,000 checks that they campaigned on. This is outrageous, and this is something that I think more people should should actually know about. But you know what? MSNBC and CNN are not going to report on this. You have to subscribe to the Daily Poster. You have to go out, and you have to hunt your own news. you got to go out, hunt it, kill it, bring it down. Go get your news. Um, Daily Poster is a, is a really good uh, news source. Uh, this story right here, David Sirota, Julia Rock, and Andrew Perez, Dems reject bigger survival checks, float tax breaks for the rich. Party leaders are backing off a chance to push for a new round of $2,000 survival checks while Democratic lawmakers consider new tax breaks for the wealthy. Uh, 
If passed, the new stimulus proposal released this week by President-elect Joe Biden would significantly boost the minimum wage and funding for unemployment benefits and rental assistance. But the Biden initiative recommends sending $1,400 checks instead of $2,000 checks dollar checks, a reduction that would save the federal government somewhere between $164 billion and $200 billion, based on estimates from the Congress's Joint Committee on Taxation and the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget. Now, at the same time, Democratic lawmakers are considering resurrecting their past proposal to uh, temporarily repeal a cap on state and local tax, that's SALT deductions, that high earners can deduct on their federal taxes. According to the Joint Committee on Taxation, temporarily repealing the current $10,000 cap on the SALT deduction would cost $136 billion over the next two years, which was the time frame proposed for a repeal and legislation pushed by House Democrats this year. So there you have it. That's where, that's where your extra $600 in this check that was promised to you, that's where it's going. It's going to wealthy people so that uh, when they pay their taxes, they get the money back that they have to pay in state and local taxes. That's what the SALT thing does. Um, this should be outrageous. This should, this should be outrageous to, to anybody who has been paying attention. And I think that anybody who has been paying attention actually includes everybody because we all are hurting right now. We all need assistance. And the economy itself needs assistance. Tax breaks do not help the economy. Tax breaks for wealthy people do not help the economy. If you want to help the economy and you want to get things going, you have to put money into the hands of people who are going to spend it immediately. And that's that's you and me, you know, that's, that's not the big business owners and the, the folks who are being included in all of these special deals as uh, Biden takes office. Now, we're going to keep an eye on this. I'm not saying that, that right off the bat that, that Biden is going to be a disaster for working Americans, but I think that Joe Biden is somebody that we have to keep an eye on, and we have to keep political pressure up on. And with that, I just want to give you a heads up. We are going to explore a little bit more later in the show about uh, political pressure and some of the backlash that has been happening lately. All righty then, we'll be right back. We're going to have Cardiff Krishnire calling in in just a few minutes, and I want to set that up a little bit. As I mentioned earlier, uh, I'm interested in finding out 
how this legislative agenda that Joe Biden is interested in pushing, I want to know what the history is behind that. I want to know what happened in 1993 after Bill Clinton was elected, and I want to know what happened or be reminded what happened in 2009 after uh, uh, Obama was elected, because uh, we all know that what was uh, promised and, and and what we were looking forward to didn't come about. And there are reasons why that didn't come about. There are things that happened in uh, in the legislative process specifically that uh, that interfered. And so Cardick, our history as expert, is the right person for that job. And we had a, a conversation earlier today that I thought was um, quite illuminating on the subject. And uh, he should be here in uh, just a second. Technical notes, I am also working on pushing this show out to other platforms. So currently we've, we've been on blog talk radio and iTunes for quite some time and I'm pushing out through anchor now and anchor goes to Spotify and a lot of other platforms. So, um, and then this week we'll also be pushing out to uh, SoundCloud. So we are, Diluting all the ways that uh, that that we get um, why there's Cardiff. We're diluting the ways that that we get the podcast out to people and uh, improving the quality. Hey there, Cardiff Krishnayer. How are you? I'm I'm really good actually. It's been it's been a good Sunday and and I think a a really good show so far. And I wanted to bring you on to talk about uh, uh, what happened in uh, 1993 and in 2009 after the election of Bill Clinton and then after the election of of Obama. How how does how does a new president's agenda get uh, go through the legislative process and get changed. So big things happened in 93 that changed the direction of Bill Clinton's uh, agenda. And things happened in 2009 that changed Obama's agenda. And I thought that you were like, there's no better person to remind us of, of that history than Cardiff Krishnar. Oh, I appreciate that. I think first thing we have to remember is that there were large Democratic majorities. In fact, their House majority was exactly the same. I think it was 256 to 178. Um, that number sticks out in my mind because I remember both times we had, we had 256 members, we then lost the majority in the next election, 94 in 2010. Um, in terms of the Senate, I, I think the majority was uh, – it was uh, – 59-41 for Obama, and then Arlen Specter switched parties, but then Ted Kennedy died, and the Democrats lost the special election, which was um, stunning in Massachusetts, and that took took the Democrats under 60. In the Clinton years, I remember, I think it was 50, um, 58, and then Weiss-Fowler lost a runoff. Okay, it was 58 after the election, or we thought it was 58, and then Weiss-Fowler in a similar situation to uh, 
to David Perdue this time in that odd Georgia runoff. He had won the first round and had fallen just below 50. It was like 49.8 or something. And then the Republicans beat him in the runoff, low turnout runoff. So that, that dropped it to 57. And then um, Clinton put Boyd Benson in his cabinet. And the Democrats got killed in the special election. I haven't won a statewide race in, in, in Texas since. And so it was down to 56, if I recall correctly. But that's still better than 50-50 in 222 to 213. That's what the majority will be after the two uh, vacant seats, both of which will be filled by Republicans, um, are, are filled in, in, in the U.S. House. So we had these large majorities for the Democrats. And yet what ended up happening is you had in – Clinton, a guy who was not a creature of Washington, who surrounded himself with a lot of campaign cronies and people from Arkansas um, in his administration, and really didn't rely on maybe the uh, the expertise uh, of dealing with the Senate that Al Gore had in a similar way to what Obama finally did with Biden in 2009. And 93 was a disaster. Uh, Clinton would send... Sent uh, legislation up, and the thing that was so um, galling about the Clinton uh, presidency, I think, which was which was different the first year, than, which was different than than what happened with Obama, was the Democrats have been out of power for twelve years. You and I are old enough to remember that, bro. Maybe a lot of our listeners aren't. And um, we had had Democratic majorities in the House the whole time. Uh, we had lost the Senate for six years in the nineteen eighties, but there had there had been. Um, a feeling that we needed a democratic president and the country was badly off course after the Reagan years, right? And you finally have a democratic president, whether you like Bill Clinton or not, and he was obviously of a more centrist profile than of the people we had nominated in the past, like the Mondales and the caucuses and the governors and even Jimmy Carter. Um, but he came into office and had no honeymoon. I mean, it was... Right away, the Republicans had decried, had basically uh, tarred and feathered him as being illegitimate because he had won in a three-way split. He had won with um, 43% or something of the popular vote in a very low number. Remember, Ross Perot took 19% of the popular vote that year. And um, the budget that got set up uh, got uh, first the stimulus bill. We had a stimulus bill to start '93, and that got – um, got manipulated by members of Congress who stuck, stuck pork project on it and something that was supposed to be pretty straightforward, which was, you know, put, putting some uh, money into infrastructure development and putting some money into uh, things like uh, national service and AmeriCorps. Remember AmeriCorps and all, all of these, the, 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 these things that um, had been talked about by the DLC and all these moderate, these centrist democratic things ended up becoming a, a bill full of pork which Clinton needed to secure the votes of, um, uh, of Democrats against the unified Republican Party. Then there was the issue of, uh, of the budget, which um, you had a number of uh, members of the U.S. House that um, Democrats that were against it. In fact, uh, I, I, I was just recalling this, that in the House, uh, uh, Clinton had to give in on the, the tax on uh, BTUs. Uh, British thermal units, in order to get a bunch of uh, energy state Democrats, Oklahoma, Louisiana, and Texas, to vote for the bill 
in the House to get it through by one vote when the Democrats have like an 80 seat majority. This is how many Democrats have, 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 have effectively gone against this bill, which was um, you know, a bill with, with, with tax increases, right? But we had said, I think it had been made pretty clear in the 92 campaign that the Republicans had cut taxes on uh, the upper brackets and that the middle class needed a tax cut. So the tax increases were on, um, on, on uh, capital gains taxes and were on, and I know you remember this pretty well, the other tax increases were on sin taxes and things like, like energy um, and, and, and cigarettes and things like that, right? Uh, alcohol taxes. It wasn't, um, it wasn't what the Republicans had made it out to be. And then obviously in the Senate, famously, Al Gore had to break the tie on that, uh, which was uh, – uh, only got to a tie after Bob Kerry had extracted a bunch of concessions out of the president. Uh, he had been a rival right in there. Um, the Democratic primaries. He had run for president also in 1992. Never had a good relationship with Clinton, and uh, got the concessions he he wanted and voted for the bill. And then Gore went and broke the tie. Then we had a gun control bill, uh, which was actually, you know, ironically enough, sponsored by the guy who would become president 28 years later. That's how long Joe Biden's career has been. He had already been in the Senate two decades at that point. Um, we had a gun control bill sponsored by Joe Biden in the Senate, and. Uh, um, and uh, Jack Brooks in the House that, that absolutely broke the Democratic Party in two, kind of similar to what um, we now see or we now think might happen with the Republican Party. And, uh, and that gun control bill, I think, was it. I mean, <laughs> that was, uh, uh, you know, they steered that through, uh, Brooks and, and Biden. Brooks ended up losing his seat uh, on that issue alone. And, uh, uh, I mean, Biden was from Delaware, so I guess he was safer, but a bunch of Democrats in the Senate lost because of it. So it was really bad, and a lot of Democrats were playing ball with the Republicans. 2009, we saw what happened with health care. We saw the number of Democrats right away who said they were elected from conservative districts and that they couldn't go along with the, the, uh, the radicalism of the Obama administration. Now, here's what I think Joe Biden may have learned from that. So Biden – um, obviously, was the vice president under Obama, saw 2009 and 2010 was an epic failure. What ended up happening is Obama's second term, uh, or especially after the Republicans – remember, the Republicans kept control, uh, the Democrats kept control of the Senate until 2014. So um, this, the, I think the chief difference between the Obama years and the Clinton years is in 94, the Democrats lost both houses of Congress. In 2010, even though it was actually a worse disaster in the House, you know, Republicans picked up close to 70 seats in the House in, in 2010. In uh, 94, the number was 52, and then a bunch of people switched parties after. But um, the, the Democrats had also lost control of the Senate. It was a closer Senate, as I mentioned. The Democrats had such a big majority going into the 2010 election in the Senate, even though I think the Democrats lost eight or nine seats, seven or eight seats. They stayed in the majority, and they stayed in the majority for four more years until 2014. Now, obviously, just got the majority back last week or two weeks ago. But um, that was the chief difference. So he still had a Democratic Senate. And he, unlike Clinton, Obama decided to start using executive orders, particularly in his second term, to push some progressive ideas or moderately progressive ideas forward, which might be the template for Biden. But I have to point this out before we go further in the discussion. Um, I just kind of poked around right-wing sites right-wing news media today. Rasmussen, which is, of course, the 
uh, President Trump and the right's favorite pollster, has already been in the field polling on immigration, polling on uh, on uh, minimum wage and job losses. And uh, let me actually uh, give you the other poll. So he's been polling on um, immigration, and he's going to start a weekly immigration index because of the Biden administration's plans uh, on the news media having too much power and on slavery reparations. Hmm. So these are the these are the three polls from Rasmussen this week. So they're all we already know where the Republicans or the conservatives are going to go in terms of dog whistling. And this is the same thing I saw on Newsmax's website, an article on slavery reparations. And I thought, this is really weird. Well, what, where did this come from? And then I saw Rasmussen hold on it. So I think what you are already going to see is ahead of, of whatever Biden does. And I do, and I have seen some people now nervously say, hey, Biden is maybe jumping too far out in front of this thing on immigration. That they thought he was, that the uh, impression Biden had given to uh, to people was that he was very moderate on immigration. And in fact, people are, who have seen his immigration plan are now saying this is actually much more aggressive than anything we we expected even from Hillary or from Obama. It, 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 uh, uh, they're they're happy about it, but um, it could it, it's going to make it probably easier for the right wing media and um, the conservatives. To, to, to dog whistle on these things, thus, and this is what's important, Brooke, scaring some Democrats. So I can already see Joe Manchin walking walking in front of the television camera and saying, yeah, you know, the president, I want to support him, but he's going too far on, on uh, immigration. I'll lose my seat in West Virginia. And then the same thing on all this other stuff. So that's, that's the danger. Do not me- assume... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Let me interject something on reparations because this is a, this came up earlier this week with um, the Ben Dixon show, Click Beatty. Uh, they've been saying that uh, pushing for Medicare for all, uh, because pushing for Medicare for all through a force to vote would be uh, performative and 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 wouldn't actually happen. Uh, that. Uh, at least in the first round or so, that if if a move for Medicare for all doesn't also include a move for reparations, then the people who are doing the move for Medicare for all by the transitive power of identity, I guess, are uh, are are racist and they're prepared to you know, smear the left that has been working for Medicare for all for so long as a bunch of racists because we haven't include reparation, included reparations in, uh, in a call for force the vote. And it's not like there's even a bill on, on reparations. There's been a bill to study it, but there's not been a pill that, that makes any sense of it. So where you've got the right coalescing around reparations to pounce on it. You also have these establishment uh, progressives with big quotation marks around them, establishment progressives who are rising up through the ranks and, you know, getting a lot of uh, support from the party in the form of uh, agents and uh, production help. Uh, You have them pushing reparations really, really hard. Yeah, so this is interesting because I think uh, it, 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 it's a uh, issue that will destroy 
the co- whatever coalition the Democrats have put together. Well, maybe it doesn't because maybe maybe working class whites are no longer part of the Democrats' coalition and they have no intention of winning them back. Hence, why they wouldn't care about Medicare for all and other progressive working class issues. You push immigration, you push uh, uh, slavery reparations. You're not going to win those voters back, and you're going to hope that the um, that the suburban whites that did trend further towards uh, the Democrats this time. There's no question about it. I've gone and even looked at states like Virginia and and, uh, and, and even Ohio, which uh, Trump won big, and, and uh, some of the places that have, were not controversial. Well, there was nothing really controversial, but that where controversy wasn't manufactured by the Trump campaign, states that weren't particularly close. And there, there, there is even Kansas, um, the, the, the Kansas side of the, the Missouri River, the uh, – the um, the uh, um, overland park, that area, the areas on the other side of the border from Kansas City, Missouri. Even those suburban areas trended pretty dramatically towards the Democrats in this election. Um, a, a suburbs of places like Albuquerque, too. I mean, so the Democrats have this suburban white thing happening for them. There's no question about it. My point being, um, you, you can only, you have to hope they continue to be what, stereotypically, and I hate to use this term, but continue to be guilty white liberals. Because otherwise, there's no political upside to pushing reparations. You're going to break your coalition. You're going to, you're going to lose. You're going to spend whatever voters you have left. Now, on the immigration thing, maybe Biden just feels like he lost so many Latino votes this time. This is the way to rescue it, which, again, goes to the Democrats' unwillingness to, to think about economic issues unwillingness to think about things like Medicare for All, which would benefit the Latino community probably more than any other community. Uh, Unwillingness to think about um, issues like universal basic income. Uh, Biden has made progress on the minimum wage. Actually, before I get back to everything else, let's talk about that issue, because that is an issue where I can see Biden having stepped out, maybe ahead of where a lot of the uh, congressional Democrats were. Mm -hmm. And uh, perhaps that's another issue where Biden tries to get a 15 dollar or fourteen fifty minimum wage, sends it up to the Hill, and uh, the mansions of the world say, no, we can't do it. In, in fact, I would be very surprised that Manchin voted for that. So then you're, ha- you're, you're, you're needing to get some Republican votes. And in the past, I was involved, um, I just actually got up to the Capitol when we had a minimum wage fight 25 years ago, not 25 years, 23 years ago. And um, Republicans were in control of the Congress, but what ended up have, having to happen is uh, um, you needed a unified Democratic caucus, um, lost a couple of Southern Democrats. We still had more seats in the rural South then. Um, and then you have to rely on re- working class Republican voters from these districts where Bill Clinton had won. And you had Republican working class voters. Now, those are still the same seats where we have the famous Obama Trump voters, same exact places where. Um, and it was talked about a lot, right? It was even talked about during the Iowa caucus that Pete Buttigieg had apparently run the table in those uh, counties, even though Bernie Sanders had won the rest of the state. Um, that those voters, I believe, are no longer winnable for the Democrats based on this, this, this past cycle when you actually ran a Catholic candidate, a working-class Catholic candidate, and he didn't win those voters back. So, um, in fact, I think every single one of those counties in Iowa, maybe except for one or two, still won for Trump. Um, I'm not talking specifically about Iowa. I'm talking about those sorts of places around the country. But the minimum wage, you may not – those Republicans may feel unafraid now to where 
they need to win and hold their seats in Republican primaries. They have to appear Trumpy. So you may not be able to offset the losses from Democratic votes. And then this is where we get into trouble. Then Biden's going to say, okay, I didn't mean 1450. I meant uh, 1275 and changed it over 15 years or something like that. That's what will end up happening. I'm almost sure that's going to happen on the minimum wage increase unless Biden makes it by executive order, which I don't think he can do. I think that has to be legislative. Mm -hmm. I'm not positive, though. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is my concern that you're going to have some Democrats also with a lot of policy. Lobbyists are going to come to them and say, "Okay, um, we're all saying on the outside, you know, great. You know, we have a new president. Let's support him. But privately, the 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 National Federation of Independent Businesses, which has gotten in more with the Democrats, NFIB, in the last few cycles, uh, Pelosi has kind of shamelessly courted them uh, and the DCCC to get money for uh, candidates in, in certain certain swing districts. They may come to, uh, I mean, they might get Manchin right away, and then you're down to 49. And they're going to say, hey, they may be publicly congratulating the new president, but they're going to, you know, NFIB and the chamber, U.S. chamber, they're not going to go for this uh, for this minimum wage increase. And I already see on the right they're talking about how uh, Taco Bell tacos will cost forty dollars, and all this historical stuff they always do when, when we talk about these issues. And McDonald's, well, if you want a hamburger from McDonald's, it's going to call, it's going to be like a sit-down restaurant. So they're already ratcheting it, ratcheting it up. I feel like Biden and his team are not really organized yet with their messaging, um, which may not be their fault. Like right? they haven't had a, a, a normal transition because of everything else going on. And um, and I, I just think. Unfortunately, Brooke, I hate to say this, I think they're going to be Democrats who right away fall prey, uh, Democrats in Congress who fall prey to these to the lobbyists. I mean, think about the four or five or six members that voted against Pelosi for speaker last week. You think, mm-hmm. you think those members are going to willingly vote for a minimum wage increase? You think they're not talking to the chamber before they cast that vote? Mm-hmm. And just a reminder that that those people who didn't vote for Nancy Pelosi, instead of being uh, the progressive squad, were uh, there were some CIA Democrats and it very very conser- the super conservative Democrats. Yeah, can I mention real quickly Abby Spanberger, who was one of them? Um, she said she made a big issue at the at the caucus meeting the week after the election, so like November tenth. Um, when the new members and, and the former members came to came came to Washington to to, to for orient, freshman orientation and then for caucus meetings, so that's why someone who was a returning member like her did. She said that the socialism issue almost cost her her seat. She said that the Democrats hadn't pushed back on it, and you know the AOCs and the Squad members they uh they they'd given the, the party a bad name. Well, I actually just thought I was doing this thing. I'm looking trying to pour through election results. I'm looking at suburban areas, uh, and I'm looking at Spanberger's district in Virginia. Uh, interestingly enough, Joe Biden running for president in a year when uh, Abby Spanberger claims the Democrats have been tarred with the, the identity of being socialists, ran four and a half points better in Abby Spanberger's district than Hillary Clinton did, the nominee in 2016, who was running as kind of a CIA Democrat, as you said. So I find it ironic. They, they create their own reality to justify their moderation. Um, I don't think anyone has actually called her on this. You know, I probably should tweet this. But effectively, she said this, but Biden ran four and a half points better in her district than Clinton did. So then what, where's her justification for her, for her comments? Unless it's her race individually was somehow different than the presidential race. I, I don't 
then if that's the case, then that's her fault that that happened. That's about her and not about the party and the party's identity. Well, and she won a race. I mean, she's she's there right. to complain. So, I mean, I, 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 all of that has the feel to me of a of a messaging campaign that really wasn't about what they were saying it was about. They were saying it was about it, it, we lost a couple of races because of Medicare for All and uh, a Black Lives Matter movement, but they can't prove it and, and they can't produce any evidence that that backs up their claims at all. No, again, in suburban areas, Biden ran at, and again, I don't know if this is a backlash against Trump and maybe these are unnaturally high numbers for de- for a Democrat because uh, Biden, Biden was winning places that Bill Clinton got smashed in. I looked at Cobb County, Georgia, which is a county uh, which I also helped decide uh, these Senate races for the Democrats. Bill Clinton, even when he won Georgia in, in 1992, lost the county by 15 points. In 1996, he lost Georgia by a point. So effectively, it's within a point of where because Biden won Georgia by like 0.2 points. Um, he lost Cobb County by 20 points. Um, uh, 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 Biden won Cobb County by 14 points, and then in the Senate runoff, uh, Warnock expanded that to 20 points or 18 points. So, again, they're running better in these places where supposedly socialism would hurt you. Because if you think socialism is going to hurt you, um, the label, it's going to hurt you with economic elite. Now, why is it that the, it's these wealthy suburbs of, of places? I mentioned Overland Park, Kansas, um, in j- just a little while ago. Why is it these suburbs of these places and even – the, the, the outer outlying areas of Cleveland were the only places in, in the state where Biden ran better than, than Hillary Clinton did four years ago. Only place in the state he ran better than uh, than uh, um, than Obama. Tarrant County, Texas, which is Fort Worth, uh, a lot of suburban areas, heavily Republican county, hadn't voted for a Democrat since LBJ in 64, voted for Biden. Okay, so those are places Clinton lost twice, Obama lost twice, Carter lost twice. Um, so the Democrats are winning in places with economic elites, with people who have money. Those are the people who, in theory, am I correct? Right, the bourgeois, the people who who would supposedly be put off by the term socialism under the arguments made by um, those political insiders who are making the arguments. Yet they can't even look at the fact that the areas where, um, if you talked about socialism or communism outside of Miami-Dade County, right in Broward County, Florida, outside of those places, uh, outside of Florida. Let's just take Florida out of the picture and talk about the other 49 states. It had no impact on the electorate. In fact, it might have turned off uh, some people because socialism doesn't have the same connotation it did during the Cold War for those suburban voters. They might have said, yeah, you know what? Joe Biden's a socialist. Great. You know, AOC's leading the party. Great. Now I'm going to vote for them. Then I might be better off with them. So this idea that it hurts the Democrats, because, you know, and I said this right after the election, but now I'm going back and looking at election data. Now that we have actual clear data, we have precinct data, we have data by congressional districts in most states. We don't have it in every state. But in, in the states, uh, real states that I really want to look at, like Texas, like Virginia, like Ohio, uh, Kansas is a state that I mentioned. 
because uh, I thought that I, I think it's interesting that the Democrats are suddenly um, you know picking up some votes in in in, in, in suburban uh, areas of Kansas City, uh, whereas in Missouri, where Kansas City actually is Democrats, uh, Biden ran as bad as any Democrat uh, ever, <laughs> and that includes McGovern and. Uh, and, and uh, Mondale. And actually, Dukakis almost won, actually ran worse than Mondale, Biden did, ran about the same as McGovern, and ran significantly worse than Dukakis did in Missouri. So the Democrats aren't able to win in like working class areas, working class white areas, but in these suburban areas, they've really turned the corner. Um, and again, they, those would be the places. Am I correct? Or am I reading those this all wrong? The- Those would be the places where the socialist label should hurt you the most. But those are also the places where people are keenly aware that 10 years ago, health care insurance for their family cost about $5,000, and now it cost about $25,000. They're also keenly wow. aware that, uh, that medical bankruptcy, even with, you, with gold-plated insurance, if you have a, a, a heart attack or cancer, you are going to go bankrupt. You're going to lose everything. And if there's one thing that's true about class, it's, it, it's that the, the, the bourgeoisie is, is more keenly aware of their position and they are motivated by fear of losing their position, whereas uh, the working classes are just always in the churn. They're always just trying to yeah. – to, to, to get along, but but the bourgeoisie absolutely has territory they're trying to protect. Yeah, so that 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 says it right there on healthcare, because I think what that tells you is that the suburban uh, family uh, is keenly aware of their insurance premiums every month and what they're paying and how much how much less of their check they're taking home. Right, the working class may not be consistently getting a check. They don't, they don't have health insurance. You know, we know the situation. So part of what we wanted to do on the left is cover those people and, 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 and lift those people up. But you're right. They don't actually know the cost of things the way the suburban, the upper middle class would. And the upper middle class has seen their premiums go up. They blame Republicans for that. They blame the insurance industry. So maybe when you say – uh, the Democrats are socialists, that sounds good to them. Because there has to be an explanation for why this year, more than any year, the Republicans started hitting uh, any Democrat that ran with the socialist label, and yet the Democrats racked up these huge margins in suburban areas. And um, Gwinnett County is another one outside of Atlanta. Yeah. I know the demographics have changed slightly in some of these places, but the numbers, the Democrats, I remember how far to the right Gwinnett was in the 90s. Mm-hmm. I mean, the numbers, the Democrats have racked up in some of these places, uh, Biden in particular, but even down ballot, some Democrats did very well, um, is amazing. And like I'm saying, the, the, the Kansas suburbs of Kansas City, the, 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 there were huge numbers for Biden. In those areas right across the border from, from Missouri, there were huge numbers for Biden in the suburbs of, uh, of Milwaukee. And these were places Hillary Clinton lost, the difference in the state of Wisconsin were those areas. There were huge margins for Biden in, in, in the suburbs of Detroit. He didn't run as well as Clinton did, actually, in Detroit, in the city, or about the same, in Wayne County. But then you look at the outlying counties of Detroit, which, by the way, I know Detroit has been an economic basket case, but the suburbs of Detroit, because the management class from General Motors and Ford and Chrysler have lived there, are some of the richest suburbs in the country, Bloomfield Hills, Auburn Hills, Pontiac, those places— 
Biden had the best margins for any Democrat going back to Lyndon Johnson in those places. So, yeah, this idea that socialism is going to kill the Democrats, if anything, the rich upper middle class voter might have might, might be seeing this and saying, yeah, you know, we want some of that. We want the protection. You're right, Brooke. They're scared of losing their status. And they don't think that they'd rather have someone in there that's going to protect their status because they're very classist themselves, mm-hmm. very elitist, than having um, the Republicans. And, and maybe what they think of is rabble when they look at Trump. They think it's very natural. So the summation on all this is the socialism thing uh, has not, did not affect the electorate outside of Florida. Uh, in the other 49 states, it did not affect the electorate. Yet there will be Democrats who come uh, when Biden sent his, his legislation up to, to Congress who say, hey, Mr. President, uh, I'm glad you won, but I can't vote with you because of the socialist thing. And you will then know those people are full of shit. Ah, that's what I was looking for. That's what I was looking for. Okay, that's what we're going to do. We are going to, this is going to be, uh, like brackets during a, a basketball playoffs, <laughs> we're going to keep an eye on 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 who votes with them and who votes against them, uh, based on specifically based on on the socialism thing. Now, Kardik, I know you got to yeah. run and get uh, you, you're doing another uh, show on history, and I want to make sure that people know how to find your history podcast because it's just amazing. It is so good. Oh, thanks. So it's the Florida History Podcast. You can find it on Apple Podcasts. I always say iTunes, but I know it's actually Apple Podcasts now. Um, although I think if you type in a podcast on iTunes, it'll probably take you to the right place. Uh, but So you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Pod, uh, Spotify, Stitcher, uh, all the usual uh, podcast places. And, and you can also find it at thefloridasqueeze.com. Um, real quickly, the, the three episodes, the next three episodes, uh, which are all going to be hopefully kicked tonight, uh, are on the attempted assassination of FDR uh, in Miami before he took office, just right before the inauguration, a couple, uh, couple weeks before the inauguration in 1933, in the, in the height of the Great Depression. Um, the 1968 riots in Miami during the Republican National Convention, and then also a subject that uh, uh, <laughs> I've wanted to do a podcast on a lot for a while, which is the links between the uh, state of Florida and the Watergate scandal, which were extensive. And um, I'm actually, I'm not a fan of MSNBC or CNN commentators writing books. Uh, and I'd never buy these things because they're always about some contemporary political thing. Recently, it's just the Trump bashing. And then you'll have the CNN, the Fox commentators writing books praising Trump or praising Kavanaugh or attacking Obama. But I was actually intrigued. Rachel Maddow wrote a book about Spiro Agnew, which I thought was kind of fascinating. So um, I actually had a family member buy it for me for Christmas, for requested it, and got it for Christmas. And it's actually quite good. Um, so it's reminded me a lot of the, um, the non-Watergate scandals of the Nixon administration, because I think we tend to focus so heavily on Watergate uh, in hindsight, even to the point where Watergate became this old umbrella term for all the other Nixon scandals, including the bombing of Cambodia, right, the, the mining of harbors. In, in North Vietnam, all this stuff that violated international law. But um, this book that, uh, interestingly, Rachel Maddow, of all people, she has a co-author, but um, she has written, is reminding me of the really kind of the entire scandal played Nixon administration, even when you don't include Watergate. 
and, and, and the kind of people that were around Nixon, including this vice president, who, who had to resign. Um, I haven't finished the book yet, but had to resign, obviously, uh, while in office. Wow. Well, we will keep an eye on that and uh, and uh, keep uh uh, keep bringing you back to talk about this as uh, as Biden's agenda advances, um, however quickly or slowly it does. I can't wait to see how this comes out. It's big cliffhanger. Thank you so much, Kardik, and we will see you again real soon. back and I promised that I would get into some drama <clears throat> so here we are got a few minutes before I'm gonna uh, put Janine on for the justice report and I'm really interested in a social media uh, uh, thing that's happening uh, there's a, a, a group of former progressives that have attached themselves to uh, Democratic Party establishment types. And I've never seen anything like this before uh, from, from, you know, people that, that uh, the people have trusted, but they've absolutely turned on lefties and are trying their damnedest to to smear them and so there's been you know the question has been raised what is this about you know why 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 now and 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 why these people and why why go after why go after uh you know people who are ostensibly on your side you know these are these are folks who are very pro bernie very pro medicare for all um, and have later attached themselves to the Andrew Gillum campaign. Now, remember that Andrew Gillum had been very vocal in favor of Medicare for All until, right up until, he got $4 million from the progressive, so-called progressive uh, uh, organizations in Florida, which includes uh, SCIU and a, and a couple of other groups, kind of came together. And uh, I, I'm real interested to know where that four million dollars came from because I I, I I rather doubt that that these organizations just had it in the piggy bank to to give to Andrew Gillum. Uh, but the moment he got that money. <clears throat> And the moment he got that endorsement, which, you know, the money came with the endorsement, he changed his tune 180 degrees on Medicare for all. Suddenly he was, no, no, no Medicare for all. No, that's bad. That's super bad. And so that, that made me curious and, uh, you, you know, started looking into the lobbyist that Andrew Gillum is surrounded by or was at least in 2018. And 
I was wondering if those particular lobbyists were taking money from healthcare companies and lo and behold, you know, they, they absolutely were. And it wasn't just a little bit here and there. It was, it, it was a whole lot. Like, uh, you know, a, a lobbyist might have 15 or 20 different uh, clients uh, a year and, uh, and mostly in Florida, these kinds of, of uh, uh, lobbyists will have uh, cities and counties, you know, like there'll be Miami and Orlando and uh, uh, Tampa, so on and so forth. And so they, they, they work on the issues for those particular municipalities and, uh, and metro areas. But then there's all of these corporate interests. And the big money corporate interests in, in Florida are healthcare, energy, like Duke Energy and Florida Power and Light and various different gas companies, gas being like natural gas, and, um, and sugar, of course. So started looking into this, and, and sure enough, uh, the, the uh, lobbyists associated with, with Andrew Gillum were um, taken – they, their their client base was solidly, you know, like Florida Healthcare Association, solidly in the camp of uh, anti Medicare for all, right? So that brings us to what's going on now. Why are all these people just going on this this melee to attack people who were? you know, their buddies, their friends, you know, what, what gives, why, why, why this, why now? Well, you know, what's getting ready to happen because the last uh, governor's race was in 2018. The next one's going to be in 2022 and it is 2021. And that is the year where people start getting all their little ducks in a row to run again. Now, you might have noticed a month or two ago, uh, Andrew Gillum made a big attempt to get out in the media and say uh, that that whole thing that happened in the hotel with the drugs and the prostitute and stuff, uh, that uh, that is really because of, of his identity that he identifies as bisexual and that uh, that uh, he was, you know, he did rehab and he's done with that. And so he, he, he's fixed the drug problem, apparently. Um, but but you have to respect the fact that he's bisexual and that his wife and children are all OK with that somehow. All right. You know, so so it's it's become an identity identity issue. You know, there's been a lot of polling going on behind the scenes because there's a lot of people who are interested in running in statewide races this this time around. And uh, as the polling has been uh, conducted at this point, what they're looking for is name recognition. They want to know who who in Florida, what, what Florida politicians, politicos, lawmakers, or wannabe lawmakers, uh, which ones of them have the highest amount of, uh, of name recognition? Because those people are going to naturally be the, the most able to um, go out there and get votes. That's the assumption. 
they found and what they keep finding over and over again is that uh, Andrew Gillum and Val Demings, Val Demings is a, a, a representative member of Congress from the 10th district, which is Northwest Orlando. Um, so Val and, and people know Val Demings because she was uh, one of the managers of the impeachment uh, situation. Uh, so she got a lot of airtime on MSNBC and CNN. So Val Demings and Andrew Gillum are most definitely running for state statewide race. I would assume that the same moneyed interests, at least as regards Gillum, that the same moneyed interests that supported him the last time would support him this time. Uh, and so I would I would look out for uh, these healthcare associations and uh, lobbyists that serve the interest of insurance companies and uh, hospital groups that, that they would be um, supporting him because he was a, a good foot soldier before. Now, when I say statewide race, that could be governor, that could be a Senate, you know, it could be a, a challenging Marco Rubio, or it could be uh, running for the state house against uh, DeSantis. Um, the thing is, the thing is, is that if Andrew Gillum gets out there with a message about, you know, that he's super progressive and everything, but Medicare for all is just a, a, a step too far. There are plenty of people who are waiting in the wings, like Ana Eskamani, who are absolutely in favor of, of Medicare for All. And there's a lot of people who are, are very uh, influential and have a lot of pull in social media who are very pro-Medicare for All. <laughs> now, I think what we're seeing right now with this bizarre push to um, attack and stab people in the back, all this nasty stuff that's going on social media. I think that what we're seeing is uh, people getting their ducks in a row for 2022. They're getting ready to protect candidate that they want to work with, who they know is going to, again, betray Medicare for all. So they are going out there to smear as uh, the, the, the met people who are pushing Medicare for all. They're out there to smear them any way they can. It really doesn't matter to them. You know, that's, it, it's not, it doesn't make any bit of difference if you smear people with lies or you smear people with, with half truths or you just, you know, go after people personally, you know, like, I don't like that person because she's ugly or fat or something, which is honestly shit that I've seen out there. Um, and one thing that they're trying to do real quick, I just want to remind you guys of this horseshoe theory. What they're trying to do is they're trying to say that people on the left who support Medicare for all are really no different from the people on the right who which makes no sense because it's not like people on the right support Medicare for all or, or anything like that. But, but horseshoe theory is something that, that gets uh, um, thrown around quite a bit. And I just want to remind people of, of how stupid horseshoe theory is. Okay. Uh, take for instance, a globalization. 
which is one of the issues that are always put forth with regard to horseshoe theory, is uh, is is the issue of globalization. Now, uh, people on the left and people on the right might both be against globalization, but they are against it for very different reasons, and they have very different aims in uh, in the outcomes that they're looking for. So. Uh, for the left, the problem with globalization is that it gives free reign to capital uh, and entrenched economic and political inequality. You know, so these are major value issues for the left. Uh, the solution, therefore, is to regulate uh, capital uh, and allow people to have some freedom of movement uh, currently given to capital goods and services to kind of bring people up to the level of capital. All right. Um, so it's in a way an alternative globalization. They're not just, you know, saying no globalization at all. They're saying, uh, you've got to regulate markets in order for them to work. You know, just, just like anything else for the right. The problem with globalization is that it has, uh, corroded supposedly traditional and homogenous cultural and ethnic communities. Their solution is to reverse globalization, uh, to protect national capital by further putting restrictions on the movement of people. And this is part of what you see with, with the um, issues with, with immigration. It's, it's a small part, but, but at any rate. And so when, when people try to push horseshoe theory on you, Really, what they're doing is is they're saying, "Hey, we got this thing. We named it this 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 name, and uh, and and we really hope you don't pay very much attention to it because if you did, you would notice that it's complete bullshit and doesn't apply." So, I just want I just wanted to put that out there and just give you something a little something something to think about that uh, you know a lot of what you're hearing right now getting ready to get into the 2022 election season, you're just hearing a lot of bullshit and you're going to keep hearing the bullshit. And then 2022 is going to roll around and it's going to be a whole lot more bullshit. Like that's just, that's just, that's politics. That's, that's the way it goes. And so, you know, do what you got to do to make sure that those people are, you know, far away from where you operate uh, they are out to get you, and they are out to get you because uh, because reasons. They have very good reasons. All right. I'm going to take a short break, and we will be right back with Janine Moloff and the Justice Report. And now for the Justice Report, we have Janine Moloff. Hey, Janine, what do you got for us tonight? Well, something's pretty interesting, actually, how the Trump administration not only compromised national security, but this compromise led to the January 6th insurrection. And I'm just going to start. My newly minted U.S. Congresswoman, Cori Bush, made me proud last week. She stood up in the House chamber 
after the violent insurrection attempt by Trump minions, after news broke these Trumpers, these white supremacists and neo-Nazis had every intent to hunt down and murder anyone daring to defy Trump. And she spoke the truth about Trump and his followers to quote Congresswoman Cori Bush, if we fail to remove a white supremacist president who incited a white supremacist insurrection, it's communities like Missouri's first district that suffer the most, end quote. And that was from St. Louis today. Excuse me. Not only did Trump incite this violent attack, but he has spearheaded the dismantling and sabotage of our Defense Department and intelligence community by removing professional career staffers who did their duty without political interference and replaced them with incompetent loyalists and treasonous acolytes. In short, it's not only our police which have been infiltrated by anti-democracy fascists, but the military and most recently during Trump's term, our intelligence community. The police and military have been infiltrated for some time as revealed by multiple investigations, including mass studies conducted by the FBI and the Brennan Center for Justice. So this is not a new story, but it has been neglected by the mainstream corporate media. This report will focus on a new development, namely how Trump orchestrated a purge of intelligence professionals while punishing any remaining if they dared investigate, guess what, white supremacists and neo-Nazi groups. It was this purge and subsequent blindsiding of our intelligence community that heavily contributed to the shocking insurrection and attack on the Capitol, which we witnessed January 6, 2021. From Talking Points Memo, there was an article by Josh Kovensky, and it was written just this January 14, 2021. The headline is Why DHS Failed to Warn the Country About January 6. You remember DHS, Department of Homeland Security, is supposed to protect us, right? So he asked the question, quote, why do the vast resources of federal law enforcement result in no threat assessment of what was coming, end quote? Why wasn't there a joint intelligence bulletin which would have normally come down the ranks? And the joint intelligence bulletin is a report that's prepared basically together with the FBI and Homeland Security's Office of Intelligence and Analysis, which is also known as the basically the office of I and A. And that joint intelligence bulletin would have given pertinent and needed information to Capitol Police, DC Police, and others that needed to know, the mayor of DC and so on. The bulletin is basically done pretty routinely for any major event, whether it's Super Bowl or a large protest. Now there was a joint intelligence bulletin that was supposedly issued on January 13th, just a few days ago, uh, to warn about the Biden inauguration. And that, that was reported by the New York Times. But the lack of a bulletin in advance of January 6th uh, basically shocked former government officials. So the aversion versus the purging, or the aversion to these bulletins, which the same as the purge. So basically, in this article, the reporter recorded, basically dealt with conversations with multiple former DHS officials and analysts. And Talking Points Memo found that, quote, a top-down aversion from the Trump administration, end quote, existed. And this top-down aversion from Trump was towards, quote, assess- towards addressing the threat 
of far-right extremism, inept management, and the dismantling of DHS bureaucracies aimed at coordinating, analyzing, and disseminating information about extremist groups contributed to the lack of warning, end quote. So there was a DHS official who had formerly served in the Trump administration who spoke to Talking Point's memo on condition of anonymity. And this anonymous source said, quote, nobody wanted to write a formal intelligence report about this, in part out of fear that such a report would be very poorly received by the MAGA folks within DHS, end quote. Now, the acting head of the FBI's Washington field office defended the Bureau's preparation, claimed that agents were basically they had to sift through months of online threats, and they didn't know what was basically just a, 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 just a threat that had no actual credence and what was real. And, but then NBC News uh, reported this past Wednesday that the field office had received an F grade uh, regarding an internal FBI evaluation on its ability to deal, and deal with domestic terrorism. So INA, Intelligence and Analysis. The, I, the INA division of DHS was actually created after 9-11. But multiple officials that formerly were um, affiliated with that office described, quote, a climate of fear within DHS around reporting threats from the far right, specifically within the department's Office of Intelligence and Analysis, end quote. And the, IA, the Intelligence and Analysis Division is critically important. It really is the linchpin. It deals with our national effort to A, monitor domestic terrorist threats, B, analyze the information, and C, disseminate to law enforcement around the country. Okay, we needed that before January 6th. Um, Elizabeth Newman was quoted, she was a former DHS Assistant Secretary for Threat Prevention and Security Policy, and she pointed out that both the FBI and DHS produced a joint intelligence bulletin before the Charlottesville rally that proved deadly. And she was quoted saying somebody was doing something back then, at least, she said. Newman left DHS in April of 2020, and she has endorsed Biden. But she also added, in the years since 2017, DHS officials basically steered INA away from even investigate, investigating far-right extremism, and that they were supposed to hand that off to the FBI. So DHS deprioritization of far-right domestic terrorism has been documented over the years. <clears throat> Professional analysts in that unit were reassigned to cover other topics as reported by The Hill. Uh, one whistleblower went to Congress um, after getting involved in a scandal where the unit surveyed journalists said that DHS officials had allegedly ordered him to stay away from the threat of white nationalism and that was as reported by the New York Times. So basically, uh, when it came, these the former officials told TPM that when it came to assess threats prior to January 6th, um, they weren't supposed to look at domestic terrorism, at least not on the far right. Quote, they wanted to rest on the idea that the affected law enforcement agencies would handle it. That was what one former official said, end quote. But my question is, if law enforcement's been infiltrated by far right extremists, isn't this a case of the fox guarding the hen house? 
but failure is broad. And so one of the excuses they had is that there's so much chatter, there's no way they can know what is a genuine threat and what isn't. Mike Cena, who's the head of the National Fusion Center Association, remember the, the fusion centers after 9-11? The National Fusion Center Association is a group representing the network of these intelligence sharing offices. And, and they're supposed to make sure that DHS, DOJ, and FBI flows around the country between agencies and to law enforcement. And Mike Cena of that National Fusion Center Association was quoted as saying, I had not received any national level products prior to January 6th, end quote. There wasn't a push for information. My question to Mr. Cena is, so no one in these fusion centers had internet access to parlor? I mean, I can look up things much quicker than he did. It's ridiculous. So again, former DHS officials told TPM that Trump supporters had mouthed off about violence online. And again, the same excuse, they couldn't know what was what. But if they were having difficulty distinguishing between real threats and what were just paper tigers, as the, as the article says, I would note that there was no such confusion expressed when progressives or Black Lives Matter were targeted by those same agencies for basically doing nothing. Okay, so again, these are excuses. Now we have The Hill. Uh, John Bowden reported in April of 2019 that the title DHS reassigns analysts and unit focused on domestic care report. So this gives full you know, some more documentation. Again, DHS has reassigned intelligence analysts um, that were part of the unit focused on combating domestic terrorism. Uh, in other words, in my opinion, Trump dismantled the unit combating domestic terrorism as, as long as that alleged terrorism came from the far right. He didn't want anybody to look into it. Um, DHS officials told the, told the Hill that analysts were remain focused on domestic terrorism, but in different positions. So my question is, what does that mean? So David Law, head of intelligence and analysis, told the Hill, quote, INA has invested heavily in interagency relationships to enhance analysis on homeland threats, including domestic terrorism, where INA lacks access to relevant case data and information held by other federal agencies. Okay, that's nice. Uh, Glaw went on to say the idea presented by some that we have cut our commitment to defeating all forms of radical ideology, including white supremacy and domestic terrorists, is patently false and the exact opposite of what we have done. The Office of Intelligence and Analysis has significantly increased tactical intelligence reporting on domestic terrorists and homegrown violent extremists since 2016. What I have to say to Mr. Glaw is poppycock. That's pure nonsense. By the way, Mr. Glaw presented absolutely no verifiable evidence to back up his dubious claim. So, again, a DHS official that wouldn't be uh, identified told the Daily Beast, the same people are working on the issues. We just restructured things to be more responsive to the INA customers within DHS and in local communities while reducing overlap in what the FBI does. We actually believe we're far more effective now, end quote. First of all, these are customers? When did our national security, when did citizens become customers? That changes the mission and the psychology right there. So 
you know, once again, they, they've restaffed people, they've removed people with the actual experience and replaced them with people that are either Trump loyalists or just totally inexperienced and inept. So they've sabotaged our national security our, by sabotaging our intelligence network. The New York Times, just this past September, September 9, 2020, in a story by Zolan Kano Young and Nicholas Fondos, uh, the headline is DHS downplayed threats from Russia and white supremacist whistleblower sets. This story is about a man named Brian Murphy. He's a former head of the DHS in intelligence division. And he accused senior leaders of warping the agency around Trump's political interest, around his particular um, you know, biases. Fort Murphy also accused Chad Wolf, who was, was, his, was the acting secretary of Homeland Security. Um, he accused him of directing whistleblowers to stop producing assessments on Russian interference. The last time I checked, Russia was still an enemy state. So top officials with DHS, according to this, art, according to this article, um, told agency analysts to downplay threats from violent white supremacists and Russian election interference. And that was according to the whistleblower complaint as uh, filed by Brian Murphy, the former head of DH of Homeland Security's uh, intelligence branch, as reported also by the New York Times. Um, his complaint included that he was ordered this spring by Chad Wolf, the acting secretary, to cease and desist producing assessments on Russian interference and rather focus instead on Iran and China. And Murphy also said that that request was routed through Chad Wolf from Robert C. O'Brien, who, who was the White House National Security Advisor. Wolf later told um, him not to disseminate, quote, a report on a Russian disinformation campaign, again, as reported by the New York Times. And that was a disinformation to basically challenge President-elect Biden's mental health because, quote, it made the president look bad. So. Uh, Murphy warned that these actions in, you know, collectively could threaten national security. They didn't care. Now, not just Chad Wolf, but Ken Cuccinelli, you remember that name. Um, he basically is a guy who wanted to make white supremacy look benign and the left dangerous. So the department's second highest ranked official, Ken Cuccinelli, also ordered Murphy to modify intelligence assessments. Okay, in other words, when he says modify intelligence assessments, to me, he says modify, I hear falsify. And the modifications was to make the threat of white supremacy, quote, appear less severe, end quote. And Cuccinelli also wanted Murphy to include information on alleged violent left-wing groups and anti-fa. Again, this was also in the, compl the complaint that Murphy filed and was released by the House Intelligence Committee. In Murphy's account, the two top officials at the department, uh, Chad Wolf and Ken Cuccinelli, they're both appointees, Trump appointees. Um, they had not been confirmed by the Senate. They were reshaping the agency's views around what Trump wanted, around Trump's language and political interests, quote, in ways that stretch the law and their authority, end quote. And for record, New York Times included a link where you could actually read Murphy's whistleblower complaint. So 
Trump ignored and downplayed Russian interference. We know that now. Um, he also didn't want to shine a light on white supremacists, neo-Nazis, or supporters of QAnon. Um, but he wanted to focus on Black Lives Matter, okay, which is no shock there. Trump has had a history uh, of virulent racism since day one, basically. Um, Murphy's complaint also provided more graphic claims that, quote, career nonpartisan analysts had been muzzled or shoved aside to downplay the threat posed specifically by Russia as it sought to sow discord and bolster Mr. Trump's reelection campaign, end quote. Now, Murphy was demoted from his post in August, according to the New York Times, um, and that was after his office filed, uh, I'm sorry, compiled these intelligence reports on protesters and journalists in Portland. Um, but Murphy asserted that his real offense was raising concerns to his superiors about the directions he had been given for cooperating with the department's, the department's inspector general. Um, and Murphy asked the inspector general to investigate what had happened and possibly reinstate him as intelligence chief. Mark Zayed, who's Murphy's lawyer, said in a statement, quote, Mr. Murphy followed proper lawful whistleblower rules in reporting serious allegations of misconduct against DHS leadership, particularly involving political distortion of intelligence analysis and retaliation. Democrats on the House Intelligence Community wanted Murphy to testify in private um, on September 21st. So Representative Adam Schiff was quoted as saying, we will get to the bottom of this, expose any and all misconduct or corruption to the American people and put a stop to the politicization of intelligence, end quote. Uh, and when we are talking about politically censored intelligence reports and assessments, we are talking about compromising our national security and falsifying data that, that could lead to um, improper arrest and, and political prosecutions. So Sarah Matthews, who is a White House spokesman, issued a statement that Mr. O'Brien, quote, never sought to dictate the intelligence community's focus on threats to the integrity of our elections or any other topic. And she called Murphy, quote, a disgruntled former employee, end quote, and claimed that Mr. O'Brien had never heard of him. Um, you know, once again, we're dealing with this nonsense. Um, so basically, we're dealing with this, and then we go ahead a little bit, because I, I want to make sure I get through all of this. Um, Murphy refused to comply with additional requests, all right? So there were requests that, um, since Murphy was responsible for producing regular updates to the FBI and state election authorities and law enforcement on any threats to our elections by foreign powers, um, Murphy said that in May, Wolf directed him to stop providing those assessments of the Russian threat. Okay, not only trying to falsify or modify the data, but now just don't don't provide those assessments to state election officials, and that he should focus on the activities that said before of China and Iran. Murphy refused to comply on the grounds that doing so would put the country in quote substantial and specific danger end quote. Two months later, Wolf approached Murphy again. Asked him to hold back a warning that Rush was mounting a disinformation campaign. Murphy objected, said it was improper. Um, you can't hold back intelligence because of political embarrassment. And this time, the complaint said he was pushed out of the decision-making process, end quote. 
Murphy also claimed that a meeting back in December, Ken Cuccinelli asked him to off, alter intelligence reports, quote, outlining high levels of corruption, violence, and poor economic conditions, end quote, in Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador. And those reports were used to inform officers when they're assessing uh, claims from migrants from that area as they're seeking asylum. Um, and Mr. Murphy said that Cuccinelli didn't like the reports and accused, quote, unknown deep state intelligence analysts of trying to compile information to undermine Trump's objectives in terms of restricting immigration. Um, but then there's more. Okay, and this is this goes directly to uh, January 6th. Cuccinelli and Wolf blocked release of a threat assessment by Murphy's office, singling out white supremacy and Russian interference as pressing dangers. Okay, and the reason was because it would quote reflect on President Trump. Cuccinelli directed Murphy to modify or falsify a section on white supremacy. Okay. Quote, Mr. Cuccinelli stated that Mr. Murphy needed to specifically modify the section on white supremacy in a manner that made the threat appear less severe, as well as include information on the prominence of violent left-wing groups, end quote. And Murphy said he refused to make those, you know, those modifications. So once again, um, we have this going on where they are playing with these reports, okay, uh, the editor-in-chief of, of the blog Lawfare um, basically uh, was, there were, oh, I'm sorry, there was analysis summarizing the tweets of Benjamin Witt, who is the editor-in-chief of Lawfare, the blog, and there was one that showed an email from Mr. Murphy telling uh, intelligence officers to refer, quote, to individuals attacking the federal courthouse, courthouse in Portland as violent Antifa anarchists, end quote. Um, and Witt is, Benjamin Witt's response was, quote, it is certainly possible that Murphy could have been a bad actor in some respects, which I think he clearly was, but also put out legitimate claims as a whistleblower, end quote. So now we have a report um, from, uh, excuse me, from The Intercept by Natasha Leonard, how the Justice Department and FBI recently eliminated the official category for investigating white supremacist crimes, end quote. And let's see now. I think I'm still good on time. So um, the hearing, basically there was a House subcommittee hearing. Uh, Rash uh, Rashida Tlaib um, described death threats. She and fellow Muslim uh, representative Ilan Omar had received in the mail. And the hearing was called Confronting White Supremacy Adequacy of the Federal Response. Okay, and Brooke, am I still good on time? Yes, ma'am. How many more minutes do I have? I know you can edit this out. Take as many as you need, actually. Okay. All right. Thank you. So Tlaib wondered why threats like this weren't as pressing as um, why they didn't qualify as domestic terrorism. Okay. Um, she said, quote, we get so many of them, and I keep asking what happens, what happens to these individuals? How is it not, not enough to fall under domestic terrorism? Well, here's the answer. The U.S. has no criminal charge specifically called domestic terrorism. Even during Charlottesville, after James Fields Jr. killed Heather Heyer at, you know, at that rally, 
and was described as a domestic terrorist. Even then Attorney General Jeff Sessions, you know, admitted that the attack really did meet the definition of domestic terrorism, but he wasn't convicted for hate, but he was convicted for hate crimes, not on terror charges. So instead of being a legal category, domestic terrorism is just used by law enforcement as a framework. That framework is used to describe cases and investigations and organize investigations. But there's been a recent shift in how the FBI classifies domestic terror categories. And that really reflects on how uh, Rashida Tlaib's question, what happens to white supremacist threats, how that's dealt with. So over the last decade, FBI previously classified domestic terrorism, and they used 11 categories. There was, and that included a specific group for white supremacists. Okay, that's fine. By the end of April of this year, the, by the end of April in 2019, I believe, the FBI and Justice Department um, told the Senate Judiciary Committee staffers that they had a new classification system for domestic terrorism. It only had four categories. And here are the four categories. Quote, racially motivated violent extremism, anti-government and anti-authority extremism, animal rights and environmental extremism, and abortion extremism. That's it. The racially motivated category, furthermore, was really targeted as the most problematic one by, by Natasha Leonard because you've got a Trump administration that loves to draw false equivalences between white supremacist violence and what they called anti-racist dis dissent. And what happened is the FBI category system now collapsed the two in the same category. And that means you don't, you, you don't get all the information you need. So the Anti-Defamation League, okay, so this new nomenclature reflects how Trump is trying to basically hide white supremacy, white supremacist violence, and, help, and thus enable them. So the Anti-Defamation League, uh, as reported by the ADL between 2009 and 2018, reported that white supremacists and far-right extremists were actually responsible for 73% of extremist murders in the U.S. And yet, that distinct threat of white supremacist violence is now unnamed, and it's just folded into this, this vague, obscure category of racially motivated extremism. That category also interjects what they call black identity extremism as well, uh, which is a category that the FBI created in 2017 so they could make unsubstantiated claims that black organizers fighting against racist police executions had, were an actual national security threat, all right? Being a, an ally in Ferguson, I know for a fact that that is a lie. Um, Again, black organizers fighting against racist police executions and police harassment are based on what I witnessed. They are just trying to get justice, nothing else. This is the FBI slandering and libeling and defaming Black Lives Matter and similar groups. But this new nomenclature really enables white supremacists, but they want to make out, they want to let you know too. According to the ADL, the new classification is more than just a mere semantic concern. It really does make it nearly impossible for the public or elected officials 
to ascertain whether the FBI is dedicating resources to investigate white supremacist terror, which is a very real threat, again, as reported by The Intercept, or if those resources are just being uh, directed to the harassment of Black Lives Matter and other civil rights activists. And, you know, again, since they're both under that category, it's hard to tell. So it goes deeper still. The New York Times Magazine highlighted a lengthy report uh, last November, and it documented that federal law, federal law enforcement, quote, has willfully ignored the growth of white supremacist extremism in the last decade, including suppressing findings in a 2009 report on the right-wing radicalization of veterans, end quote. We already know the white supremacist policing has been basically ignored in terms of infiltration by white supremacist neo-Nazis. Now, and we've seen as of January 6th, there were veterans in there, uh, in that mix. The New York Times also pointed out the fact that the reason that law enforcement in the United States basically ignores violent racists is, quote, because as an institution, it itself, meaning law enforcement, is, is violently racist and contains white supremacists in its ranks, end quote. Now, these new categories really did give the FBI further cover for those bad practices, okay? Um, this quote, quote, this new category inappropriately combines incidents involving white supremacists and so-called black identity extremists, a fabricated term based on a faulty assessment of a small number of isolated incidents, end quote. And there was a May, May letter to then attorney William Joe, Attorney General William Barr and FBI Director Christopher Wray, and it was sent by six Democratic senators, uh, including now Vice President-elect Kamala Harris, and they expressed concern about this new, quote, racially motivated extremism classification. To quote the letter, this, quote, this new category inappropriately combines incidents involving, oh, okay, I just read that quote, involving white supremacists and so-called black identity extremists, a fabricated term based on a faulty assessment of a small number of isolated incidents, end quote. Keep in mind, Kamala Harris was the attorney general for the state of California. She knows what she's doing. Um, they also said that the new, quote, anti-government and anti-authority extremism category, quote, makes no differentiation between far-right militias or left-wing radicals the former constituting a rising deadly threat and the latter for having been responsible for no deaths in the U.S. over 20 years, end quote. So Black Lives Matter, they've been responsible for zero deaths. And, you know, they also went on to say that the animal rights and environmental extremism category was also ridiculous, stating that, quote, no human or animal life has ever been lost in the U.S. because of militant animal rights and environmental activism, end quote. Michael German, who's a known expert in this um, particular field, uh, was, and he's a fellow with the Brennan Center for Justice and a former FBI agent, was quoted as saying, the recategorization is a significant tell. Rather than be upfront about their methods and the, their use of significant resources allocated to them by Congress, they chose to obscure this information, end quote. So once again, this is something where we have this cover-up, okay? Not only cover-up of information, but a reclassification of crimes, which basically 
um, hides the crimes of white supremacists and neo-Nazis, and we have a dismantling of the intelligence community. So in conclusion, the infiltration of police and military ranks nationwide by white supremacists and neo-Nazis has been known for some time. The FBI conducted an intensive study which documented this infiltration in, I'll call it gory detail. Subsequently, the allegations made by Black Lives Matter have proven substantiated. Trump and his enablers took this infiltration a step further by purging the intelligence community of anyone daring to investigate those same white supremacists and neo-Nazis, both in policing, the military, and among civilian groups. The intelligence community is the first line of defense against those who would attack democracy. Trump and his GOP enablers sabotaged our intelligence agencies, subsequently our national security in the process, in order to further the cancer of white supremacy and neo-Nazism. Congresswoman Cori Bush possessed the courage and integrity to call Trump out, along with his GOP collaborators. For her trouble, she was booed by GOP colleagues. Those Republicans didn't rattle Cory. She's Ferguson strong. All they did was prove their point. Most of the corporate media has focused on removing Trump since January 6th, but removing Trump's not enough. We must hold massive criminal investigations into office holders, cabinet members, staffers, Capitol Police, Department of Defense, and Department of Justice, in addition to the ranks of police and military personnel nationwide. Not only did the police appear to stand down on January 6th, but those who attempted to enforce the law equally were tragically outnumbered. Besides this unofficial stand down by police, our intelligence community was attacked by the president. The purpose? Criminal prosecution on a par with the Nuremberg trials. This is what we have to have. We have to have our version of the Nuremberg trials. Trump himself and his closest allies must face investigation and criminal prosecution for high treason as he crippled our national security through this purge of intelligence pros. This coup went much deeper than the events of January 6th. Like a cancer, white supremacists and neo-Nazi groups have been plotting the overthrow of democracy and mass murder of communities of color, religious minorities and other minorities for quite a while. They've been plotting the overthrow of democracy itself as well. One of the first critical steps is to replace truth. One of the first critical steps that these white supremacists and Nazis have to do to fully achieve their goal is to replace truth with propaganda. Trump and his GOP accomplished this in part by dismantling the intelligence apparatus and replacing it with political hacks and equally political prosecution. There can be no honest prosecutions of actual traitors like Trump and several members of the GOP without actionable vetted intelligence. Trump made sure that such actions were impossible or nearly impossible. And to quote Hera Arendt, as she explained, quote, in the origins of totalitarianism, before mass leaders seize the power to fit reality to their lies, their propaganda is marked by its extreme contempt for facts as such, for in their opinion, fact depends entirely on the power of man on the power of the man who can fabricate it. End quote. And that's my report. And wow, we're back. Uh, that was an amazing report. Thank you, Janine Moloff, so much. Listen, guys, this is it for us. Another show. Uh, 
Thank you so much for joining us. We will be back against again or against. We'll be back against next week. How about that? Uh, listen up. We'll smell you later. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly.